one of the one of the questions I hear around the tracks uh, relatively often is something like this: Why doesn't God reveal Himself? Why doesn't God make His presence known? If God wants to be known so badly, why doesn't He make Himself clear, like clearer? Why doesn't He announce Himself to this world? Uh, it's a pretty common question. Sometimes we might even be asking it in the midst of life as we're going uh, through regular life, uh, struggles or good times, maybe sometimes we're asking this question. Where, where is God? Why, why isn't he announcing himself to us? Why isn't he before me? Well, in today's passage uh, that Margie just read a chunk of, uh, it shows us uh, that God is making himself known. He is announcing himself to the world if only we had the eyes to see it. Uh, so that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to step through this passage and we're going to see how God is in fact announcing himself to us and to this world and what that will mean for us. Uh, we're going to step through, we're going to have a quick look at uh, the very start of chapter 8. Um, there's some silence and some prayer. Uh, we'll work through the trumpet blast pretty quickly. Uh, we're going to step into chapters 10 and 11 and have a look at the prophet uh, and the witnesses uh, and we will come back and think, well, what, what does all this mean for us? I mean, it's all this imagery, uh, it's all this vividness, all this excitement. What does it mean for us? Uh, first of all, uh, in, in the very start of chapter 8, uh, we're, we're having a look at this chunk that looks at silence and prayer. Chapter 8 opens with the, the unsealing of the seven seals. We had a look at those last week. Uh, this is the seventh of the seals. We didn't get to it. And we left it for this week because... Um, out of this seventh seal comes the seven trumpets. Um, so what we have as we, uh, as we open up and we have a look in uh, this first, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, uh, is, is the lamb, that's Jesus, the slain lamb with the authority and power and worthiness to unroll God's, uh, God's plans on the world, cracking the seventh seal... And there's this little, uh, little bit of information that says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, in and of itself, silence isn't that remarkable, uh, except by contrast. I don't know if you've ever been in somewhere that's really, uh, really noisy, and then there's silence. How amazing that is. Uh, I think of it at the Anzac Day ceremonies. Uh, if you turn up early, there's lots of talking, lots of chattering, there might be music going on. But when we come to the minute silence, how profound is that? We've, we've, had our, we've, had, we've had our noise, there's crowds, maybe thousands of people, and all of a sudden there is silence, and it is profound. And that's what's happened in heaven here. We've been working through the, the, seven, uh, the six seals, and there's been chaos, cacophony. There are riders and horsemen and plagues, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, an uncounted multitude singing is where we've just come from. So noise, 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 busy, 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 and then silence. And, and it draws our attention and makes us ask, why? Now, now the first reason is clear. There's silence in heaven uh, because it's preparing for these seven trumpets to come out. Uh, I think it's again there for the, um, the contrast. Uh, I, I don't play the trumpet. My cousin does. I don't think I'll be encouraging my kids to play the trumpet. It's very noisy. It's what you play if you want to get someone's attention. Uh, that's why we use it, or historically used it in the military, to announce what's going on. Um, so it's this silence. We're getting ready for a blast, a trumpet blast to come out. So there's preparation for the trumpets, but there's something else going on here in the start of chapter 8. There's silence because it seems all of heaven is pausing for God to listen to the prayers of his people. Have a look there in verse 3. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. And the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Isn't that remarkable? This is the one moment of quiet, of stillness in heaven, amongst all the unfolding of God's plans, and it's as if God says, hang on, I need to hear this. That's what I do when I'm driving and I need to start concentrating on where I'm going, where in inner Sydney I don't want to get lost. That's when I really want the kids to quiet down. I don't know if you do that. You turn your radio down so you can concentrate better. That, that, that's, that's the impression we're getting here. 
where God says, silence, silence, for I need to hear from my people. The smoke of their prayers like, like incense is coming up before him and filling his nostrils and filling his mind. He's giving it his attention. It's as if he's pausing all the other trumpets and seals and everything else and saying, this is where my priority is right Isn't that remarkable? Heaven stops for the, the words of his people. But, but not only does God hear and take in and pause for the prayers of his people, he listens and he acts. Um, what we saw, the, the last reference to prayer in this letter uh, was back in chapter 6. You might remember that we, we moved away from destructions on the earth and it zoomed into the, the souls of the martyrs, those Christians, God's people who have suffered and died for the cause of the gospel. And they pray. That's what they're doing. They're praying, uh, praying to God. They're saying, how long? How long, sovereign Lord? Holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and, and avenge our, our blood. This is God stopping to hear the cry of his suffering people. It's actually often when we're suffering that, suffering that we, we're most, we often feel most that, that God maybe hasn't heard us. And we've cried out. A lot of psalms are like that, aren't they? Where, where, where are you in the, in the cries of my groaning and my longing? When we're suffering, when we're hurting, that's when we wonder, is God listening? These martyrs have cried out. Uh, the, the, the prayers of God's people have, have filled his nostrils like incense and God listens and acts. Um, he, he pauses, he hears it and he acts. Then the angel took this censer, filled it with fire from the altar. This is the censer where the, the prayers were, they've just been given to God and in response, he's hurling fire on the earth and with appeals of thunder, rumblings, flashing of lightning and earthquakes. If you've ever wondered if, if prayers make a difference, if you've ever wondered, does God hear me? Does he act? Does he care? Does he respond? This should put our minds at ease that the prayers of his people, especially the prayers of his suffering people, God pauses, he, he stops, turns off the radio, he, he stops everything for silence to hear his people and he responds. In this case, with fire flung to earth. And it seems clear in the flow of this chapter that at least in part, the trumpets blast themselves of judgment are an answer to these prayers. It feels as we flow through this chapter that this fire coming down from heaven is a different way of talking about these trumpet blasts that are being blasted out over the earth. Um, there are different ways, of course, of uh, interpreting Revelation, especially interpreting what we might call these vivid parts of Revelation. Uh, we had a look at those last week. I won't go through them all again. But the, the, the quick summary uh, is the preterist view. So it all happened back in AD 70. So uh, Revelation was uh, looking back at an event 20 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And all of Revelation is really looking at that. Um, the idealist view, which is saying, no, no, this uh, Revelation chapters 4 to 22, it, it's not talking about, not only talking about a specific series of events in a specific moment of history, but this is the nature of the age in which we live. Now, I said last week, so again, that's, that's the view I, I hold. Uh, that's the explanation I'll be running with. I'll try to show you how that flows out through Revelation. Uh, there's the historical view, which says, as we step through history from Jesus' ascension to his return, you can actually map the step of Revelation and work out where you are in Revelation. So all these things are sort of end on end. And there's the futurist view, which sees chapters 4 to 22 fulfilled predominantly in the last seven years before the ultimate return of Christ. Uh, so usually you'll, you'll hear that view that'll talk about that there being a, a rapture, the Christians, whoop, off they go. Uh, and then we have the seven-year tribulation. That's when these events unfold in specific detail. And then Jesus comes again uh, for his, his ultimate uh, return. So that's the, there are different ways of interpreting Revelation. I'm with the idealists. And as I said last time, um, we, I, I see it as, as, as cyclic. We see these different events, these different desolations and the destructions happening across the globe with different intensities uh, and different combinations at every point in history. Uh, so at some points in history, like 
right now, for instance, there are some parts of the world where, where, that are suffering from all the desolations that we read about, except the, the final day desolations. They're experiencing plague. They're experiencing famine. They're experiencing war and conquest and slaughter. There, there are nations and places where that is happening today. Right where all the lines cross over. But there are other nations like Morissette, New South Wales, Australia, where there's very little of that happening. We're not really, you know, it hasn't rained for a little while, but there's still food on the shelves. There's, there's not that much happening. But that's going to change as we move through history and these cycles come through. Um, so I'm convinced of that. They're happening at, from heaps to, up, to, to nothing. But I, I want to offer a, a, a few cautions uh, as we think about these specific details of the trumpets. Uh, the first caution is that many, many Christians over the centuries have tried to pin down the details into their own time and said, this is what it was talking about. Revelation is talking about today. And so far, they've all been wrong. Well, kind of. Uh, Martin Luther, actually, there's three, three frogs later on in Revelation. He, he labelled the three frogs who are mocking as his three opponents in debate. Now, Martin Luther is a good guy. He handles the Bible really well, except for Revelation. He said, this is what Revelation is talking about. Uh, they saw the Re- Revelation as uh, the, the fighting and the warring and the debating between the Catholic and Protestant church very tightly. And that's what it was all about. Uh, throughout history, there's been loads of different interpretations saying, it's about now. We're opening our newspapers. We're reading what's happening in the world. We're saying this is happening now. And so far, they've been a bit wrong. None have been the final round. Jesus has not returned immediately after this cycle so far when so many people have expected. Uh, There will be a final round, of course. There will be a final cycle just by default. Jesus will return at some point. And one cycle of suffering and pain and destruction and chaos and loss and death will be the last one. Uh, It may be more intense, it may be more specific, that's unclear, but one will be the last. The other uh, thing we need to remember as we're walking through is that Revelation is a a specific genre. It's the apocalyptic genre, just like you might have science fiction or the sports part of your newspaper or a fantasy novel. Uh, All different genres and we read them differently. We read science fiction differently than the way we read the sports column. Unless you're reading about Australia winning the rugby and then you might be thinking uh, fantasy uh, at the moment. But, but we understand that there's different genres and we have to read them differently. Apocalyptic writing is a type of writing that was very familiar in the first century. Not just in the Bible, outside of the Bible. And it uses big, global, cosmic language with uh, vivid imagery uh, to often describe very normal events. But to give emotion and colour to these events of the world. So just remember that what we're reading, it's a familiar genre. It's like uh, picking up science fiction if you've only ever read the news and going, whoa, what's going on here? Uh, And you try and read it the same way, it's going to be tricky. So just remember that as we work through. Uh, Also remember that these cycles of seven can't be uh, end-on-end recording of of, of history. Uh, Because as we work through, we saw last week that Uh, the sixth seal was pretty clearly the return of Christ. The great day of the wrath of the Lamb has come. That's the sixth seal. But then there's a seventh seal. And out of the seventh seal come the seven trumpets. And after that come seven bowls. Um, So they can't be laid end on end throughout history. It just doesn't work within Revelation. So we've got to be very careful uh, about doing that. Um, Instead, these... Uh, Seven trumpets seem to be describing the same period as the seals, but from a different angle. Uh, It's a bit like when you're watching the sport. uh, There's these things called video refs now. Uh, You see it in the tennis, you see it in the rugby. Uh, They're the two I'm familiar with. Uh, And if the umpire is unsure, if the umpire hasn't got a clear view of what has happened, they can send it upstairs, send it up to the video ref. And what the video refs are doing are they're examining that same period of time. They don't get them to run it again. Oh, go and score that try again. We want to have another look. No, no, they, they rewind. Well, they probably don't physically do that anymore. It's digital. Uh, they rewind. They rewatch it from all the different camera angles. Uh, and, and often, what you've thought is a try, uh, you'll say, oh, it wasn't quite. From the back, you think, yep, this guy has definitely scored. He's in. The ball's down. But you look at it from a different angle. The same event 
and, and you see something different, a different detail of what's going on. Uh, that seems to be what's happening here with the, the seven uh, seals and the seven trumpets. Look at the same period of history from Jesus' ascension to his return from a different angle, emphasising different bits. That's why there is a lot of overlap between the seven trumpets and the seven seals. Although when you try and overlap them exactly, you really struggle. They don't fit exactly. That's because they're the same series from a different angle. There's different emphases uh, that are going on. Uh, Some of the differences are that in the seals, uh, often one quarter of things are being destroyed. Uh, It escalates in the trumpets, one third. So it's going up in terms of the destruction. Uh, The seals uh, seem to be all of the world. We're enduring this um, uh, the, these desolations, whereas the trumpets seem to be particularly focused on those who don't follow Jesus, those who aren't uh, who aren't sealed. You see, there's a uh, that they're allowed to harm. You know, well, there's things that they're not allowed to harm. These are the locusts in chapter nine. Can't harm the grass of the earth or any other plant or tree, but only those who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So there's there's some sort of protection of God's people here. It's particularly focused on the nations who have rejected uh, God, on the people who have rejected Jesus, uh, the Saviour. There's also this uh, massive Old Testament reliance in this part of Revelation. We see it every week, but this this part of Revelation is saturated with the Old Testament, and we have no hope of understanding it unless we're familiar with our Old Testaments, um, and we go back and have a look through them. Um, Now, that part that Margie read just for us then, with the... Uh, The trumpets, we're going to whiz through them again. Uh, Please be listening with your Old Testament ears open. Uh, Think of the, uh, look for familiar concepts and themes and words. Uh, If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, don't feel bad, uh, but take as an encouragement to get familiar with your Old Testament. Uh, The Old Testament helps the New Testament. It's like going from black and white to colour, HD, when you're using your, your Old Testament. Um, So what we see as we step through these trumpets is restrained chaos. There is horrendous destruction, but it is restrained at this point, restrained to a third of things, a third of things are destroyed. Uh, With the first trumpet, uh, we saw hail and fire and blood, a third of the earth destroyed, a third of the trees destroyed, and all the grass is destroyed. Uh, That's another reason, I just pause there, why I reckon uh, this is very symbolic Uh, Later on in chapter 9, there's locusts who are commanded not to eat any of the grass. But all the grass was destroyed back here in chapter 8. So you can say, oh, what's going on here isn't necessarily linear or specific. There's symbolism going on. So just a little bit. But we've got hail and fire and blood. Uh, The second trumpet is blown. A mountain, or something like a mountain, drops into the sea again. Uh, there's this blood, water turning into blood. A third of the sea creatures and ships uh, die. A third trumpet, a star falls from the sky into a third of the rivers and oceans. Again, you try and get too uh, specific. You go, well, how could one star fall uh, and, and fall in a third of all the rivers and oceans but miss the others? That doesn't really work. It's okay. It's symbolism. We're, we're, we're looking for emotion, for feeling. Um, the, the star's name Wormwood, which is consistently through the Old Testament, it's a, it's a plant uh, that is incredibly bitter. The plant that we know as Wormwood, we think it's the same thing, uh, isn't necessarily poisonous, but throughout the Old Testament, Wormwood turns water bitter and often poisons people. And it's especially connected with God's judgment. So again, we think, oh, what's going on here? There's this special, special name, Wormwood. Oh, it's an Old Testament word that's been pulled out to show the bitterness of the water, the poisonness of the water. Uh, the fourth angel sounds his trumpet. A third of the moon and stars and sun are destroyed. Again, you go, well, how does that work? How does a third of the sun get destroyed? And how does that result in only a third of the day being dark and the rest being light? Don't worry, it, it, it doesn't work if you, you, you figure it out uh, in terms of the way things work. But symbolically, we understand what's going on. There is incredible desolation, incredible destruction, but it's restrained to a third. Uh, then we have this eagle uh, who flies through. Whoa, 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 he turns up three times. Uh, and effectively, the eagle is saying, if you thought those first four trumpets were bad, wait for the next three. Wait for what's coming. Uh, with the fifth, we see it come. 
there's the opening of the abyss. Uh, throughout the Old Testament and the New, the abyss is where evil comes from. Uh, the deeps are where evil comes from. And out of the abyss comes locusts. Locusts like you've never seen before. I grew up in a country, we're familiar with locust plagues. They're incredibly destructive. These locusts aren't allowed to eat anything green, but they're far worse. They, they, they hurt and torture people. And they have this evil destroyer king called uh, Abaddon, which in Greek is Apollyon, that is, the destroyer. Um, so th- there's this army of locusts that are very un-locust-like. And you think, what is going on here? Why even dis- They don't even look like locusts. They've got hair and teeth. Why even describe them as locusts? But moving on, you've got your sixth trumpet and it ex- escalates again. Um, we have angels who, are, who were holding back destruction. They were prepared for this time of destruction. And now God says, uh, let, them, let them loose. Uh, they have an army, which is the number of mounted troops was twice, 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Now, Margie did it for us. It's a 200 million. Uh, troops, all mounted, all on horses. Um, so apart from anything, where are you going to assemble all these? But, but, but there's this inconceivably great army. And again, the, the number's not given there. It's 10,000 times 10,000, these huge, innumerable, innumerable troops. Uh, that's how uh, God off, uh, angels are often described. And when you can say, you can't even count them. Can you imagine 10,000 people? Have you been to a concert where there's 10,000 people? Uh, And times 10,000? You can't even imagine that multitude. How big is our population in Australia now? 25 million? 26? 200 million mounted as an army. We're getting impressions, not necessarily working through all the details. It is terrifying and destructive, but limited. Now, we're going to read the summary of these uh, trumpets because it helps us to see the big picture of everything that's going on. And, and we get it there in verse, um, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons, idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, idols that can't see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. You notice they're called plagues here? And up to this point, there's no repentance. Now we've got our Old Testament ears on. Are any Old Testament alarms going off at the moment? I hope so. Where we've seen plagues and blood and hail and locusts and hard hearts. Egypt, thank you. Egypt and Pharaoh. We are getting a flashing red light that is pointing us back to the plagues God sent into Egypt. Uh, that's, what, um, that's what's going on here. It's reminding us of that. Uh, this hard-hearted enemy of God who would not even repent in the face of supernatural plagues, the Pharaoh. Now, like so much of the Old Testament, what we saw happen in Egypt with the Pharaoh is in a small way with one nation. I say a small way. It was pretty magnificent and spectacular. But compared to this, it was small with one nation and one location. What happened there was ultimately looking forward to as a type of what God is doing here over all the earth with all the nations. What he did in a small way with Egypt, God is saying, I will do with all the nations, with the whole earth. Uh, And now as we work through these chapters, God says, I'm going to do this for everyone. So we ask, well, what was God doing in Egypt? Why did God act with plagues in Egypt time and time and time again? Um, And why does God roll out these plagues over the whole earth here? Well, first, why did it happen in Egypt? Uh, First of all, we see uh, that God acted with plagues in Egypt, firstly, because he heard the cry of his people. Uh, Back in Exodus verse 3, God's explaining to Moses, he says, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. God acted in Egypt as a response to prayer, to the cries of his people. God responding to his people. And here in chapters 8 to 11, that's happening again. It's the prayers of the saints that heaven pauses for. 
that God responds to from heaven with fire on the earth, with the blasting of trumpets. And the most recent prayers of God's people we saw were these prayers of how long, O Lord? Very familiar to the prayers of Egypt. How long until justice is done, until our blood is avenged? Now, there's other parallels here, and the other parallel is the purpose of the plagues. Back in Egypt, the the plagues that came on Egypt were not simply to save God's people. He could have done that just in, in an instant. He could have wiped out the Egyptians without going through the rigmarole of all the signs and wonders and plagues. There was more going on. We see it in Exodus chapter 7. Here's what God's saying, why he's doing it. He said, then I'll lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. I will bring about my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Now, we have two motivations for God sending these plagues here. The first is judgment. It's not just about rescue. It's, all about, it's also about judgment on rebellious nation who have rejected God and persecuted his people. But it's also about uh, pronouncing or announcing himself to the Egyptians. You notice that there? Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. These plagues have a greater purpose than just saving Uh, And that's echoed in this passage in Revelation. It's this same pattern. And there's this punishment that is rolled out on the nations. And it's a warning, isn't it? Because it's a limited judgment. Only a third is destroyed. Only a third is destroyed. And you're asking, when will they get the message? At what point of a, a destruction of a third of anything? Surely, surely at some point, the world will wake up and say, wow, there is a God who demands to be heard, who demands to be recognised. But again and again, it happens. This limited judgment, until there comes, with the seventh trumpet, a final judgment, a final destruction in the face of unrepentant world. What's going on there? Well, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, sums up this theme, I think, really helpfully uh, by, by, with this little statement. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures... And shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He could have said it is trumpet. God whispers to us in our pleasures. I'm good. I love you. I I, I belong blessing. That's what's being whispered when we're experiencing anything good in this world. God is saying, I love you. I want to bless you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to provide for you. But in our pain and suffering, he is shouting. And what we see in Revelation uh, 8 to 11 is not just shouting personally, but shouting to the nations, shouting to the world. We ask, why doesn't God reveal himself? Well, the answer is he is, with mighty cosmic trumpet blasts across the globe, with destructions and earthquakes and famines and wars and plagues. If only we have ears to hear. But even with all these plagues, even with these trumpet blasts, that's not enough for God. That's not enough of an announcement for God. Alongside these global declarations of his might and power, alongside these punishments for rebellion that are announcing to the world who he is, he also sends his messengers. And we see that in chapters uh, 10 and 11, uh, the prophet uh, and the witnesses to speak his words clearly uh, and directly to this rebellious world. Uh, now, as we, uh, as we look at this chunk, it's a little bit of an interlude through, this, through the series. Exactly the same place, uh, and, it, and it sort of models the interlude we had in the last set of seven. Uh, in the last set of seven, we paused with the seals to have a look in heaven, and what we saw were 144,000 numbered and sealed. Uh, and then we turned around and we, we heard about them, and we turned around and looked at them and found that they were a great multitude that no one can count from every tribe and nation that the Lamb had gathered to himself. Uh, it was focusing on God's people. And, and in the same way, this interlude is focusing on God's people. Uh, first of all, we have this mighty angel. Uh, angel, again, remember, the word is just messenger, uh, delivering a scroll. Uh, he's got one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. Uh, he's indeed mighty. He's huge. Uh, I think there's some more significance to the land and the sea, and we'll actually pick that up in our next couple of chunks of Revelation. 
there's some instruction uh, that he speaks, and there's there's these seven thunders, we, and that's all we hear about them. John's about to write down what they said, and there's a voice that says, "Don't write them down. Don't record the seven thunders." And you think, well, what's going on there? Why aren't they recorded? Uh, and I just want to pause and say that it's not uncommon in the Bible for something to be sealed up, to be given just to one person and not recorded. Paul actually talks about a man he knows, we think it's probably himself, uh, who was caught up in a vision and saw these amazing things, uh, but he, for his own pride and so that other people didn't feel bad, uh, he was commanded not to share what he'd seen. And maybe that's what's going on here. It's not uncommon for God to say, this is, this is just for you, John. You've heard what the thunders have said, but it's not, it's not for the church. It's not for anyone, everyone. But the focus of this, amongst all that detail, is the scroll. I heard someone describe this. It's like um, Sophie's handkerchief in the hand of the BFG. This great big giant, he's got this tiny little handkerchief and this tiny little scroll, but that is the focus of this picture. Uh, the other focus of this picture are the words that this angel speaks. Uh, we, we see them uh, there in verse uh, 6 and 7. Uh, when he finally speaks, this angel says, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. A couple of things going on there. There will be no more delay. Uh, this seems to be another answering of the cry of the martyrs. That was the question of the martyrs, wasn't the prayer. How long, O Lord? How long until justice is done? How long until you can come back and bring peace to the earth? And the angel says, hey, there's going to be no more delay. Remember, we're about to move into the seventh trumpet. And he says, immediately before that seventh trumpet, which is quite clearly the return of Jesus and the establishing of his eternal kingdom, immediately before that seventh trumpet, the mystery will be accomplished. Now, we have an idea about mystery. We think murder mystery. We think puzzles. You've got to figure it out. Uh, in the Bible, mystery comes across quite a lot. Uh, and it almost always means um, the revealing of something that has been hidden. And that seems to be what's happening here. The revealing of what was once hidden. Uh, the mystery of, of, uh, of Christ and the church uh, this relationship between God and his people, how he would save and gather a people to himself. In the Old Testament, it was a bit of a mystery. How, how is this going to go? He said, God says, I'll do it. I'm not going to tell you how. The New Testament comes out with, the, with Jesus. It's, it's revealed. It's the revelation. It's opened up. Uh, and that makes sense for the title of this book, The Revelation. Right before the end, we see the mystery of God will be not revealed, but accomplished. It will be finished. So that leads us to say what's probably going on here is right before the end, God's purposes for his people will be fulfilled. God will have gathered a people to himself. He will have brought blessing to the earth. All his plans will be accomplished before that final trumpet blast, which announces, uh, announces the end. God's plan of salvation and blessing to the peoples. Finished. And that seems to be what happens. Now, now, in the context of this, you'd expect the message of the gospel to go out. You've just heard that this mystery is going to be finished. We know what that's about. We know how God's kingdom is going to grow. It's through the preaching of his gospel. So we go, well, we'd expect for some messengers to go out. And that's what happens next. Uh, first of all, John gets the scroll, this little scroll that the mighty angel was holding. He's commanded to go take the scroll. When he goes to get the scroll, uh, he's commanded to eat it. Uh, he says it'll be sweet in your mouth and bitter uh, in your stomach. Could mean a couple of things. It, it, it probably means uh, that, it, that, that the message that, that John has been given, these words of God that he's to take into himself, it is both good and hard. And that's the gospel, isn't it? It's sweet. It says there is salvation that is free to all. And anyone, Jew or Greek, male and female, slave or free, can come into God's family as a child. How sweet is that message? But it is bitter. It is bitter because if you reject Jesus, reject this this good news, if you reject God, the creator, then there is only destruction awaiting. That's the message of the gospel. But it's also probably sweet and bitter because it was, uh, as he he ate it, it's good. God's word is always nourishing to us, uh, to his messengers. Uh, The gospel is good as you eat it. But then as you eat it, it's like a burden. 
You can't get the gospel and not have a burden to share it. And if you don't have a burden to share it, you haven't truly eaten it. You haven't ingested it. God's word is not in you until there is a burden to share it. That's what happens with God's people. That's actually what's going on here. And John is given the task of prophesying. No surprise, he's given words on a scroll. They go in his mouth. We expect them to come back out. God's words, prophesying. That's speaking of God's words to his people. And just like we had a pair in that last cycle, the 144,000 from one angle, the great multitude from the other. So here we have another aspect to this interlude. Chapter 11, more vivid imagery. Um, And and what we have here is is this incredible description uh, of of a temple. Uh, John, in his vision, it's an interactive vision, it seems. Uh, He's given a measuring rod. He's told to go measure the temple of God, the altar, the worshippers. But exclude the outer court. He said, don't measure that. Uh, Don't measure the outer court because it's been given to the Gentiles. They'll trample on this holy city for 42 months. And I'll appoint my two witnesses. They'll prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They're the two olive trees, the two lampstands. They stand before the Lord of the earth. Following along, I hope. Uh, If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so it won't rain during the time they're prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. When they've finished their testimony, the beast comes up from the abyss, will attack them, overpower and kill them. Their bodies lie in the public square of the great city. Which city? Oh, figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, but also where their Lord was crucified for three and a half days. Uh, Some from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their body and refuse them burial. The heavens of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets have tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. And they they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Now, I feel like I don't even need to explain that. It's so clear. Um, Well, it is clear if we know our Old Testaments. Again, uh, all our Old Testament alarms should be going off. Uh, The first one might be a little bit obscure, uh, but the first, the the measuring of the temple, uh, that's straight out of Ezekiel 47 and 48. Have a look uh, at your leisure. Uh, It's all about protection of God's people. And that's very clear in the context of even this. Uh, The trampling that happens doesn't happen in the temple. There's a protection of the temple that's been measured, but it's the outer courts and the city which are trampled. Um, Now also, uh, as we think about the temple, are we expecting a physical temple in Jerusalem that that will be measured and that won't be destroyed? Uh, Well, we've got to remember that this book doesn't stand on on its own. This is the last book of a New Testament that's full of descriptions Uh, by Jesus and about Jesus and about his people and the temple is consistently Christ himself and his people. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, the temple, uh, as it's described here, is not talking about uh, a physical temple in Jerusalem. It's consistently Jesus himself and his people. And so rather than trying to force uh, a literal rebuilding of the temple into this book, into this book that is drowning in imagery and symbolism, Uh, We need to allow the language of the New Testament, of which this book is part, to to tell us what it means. To go, oh, what does the temple mean? Well, Jesus tells us what the temple means. It's his body, it's his people who become part of him. Um, And and this trampling of the city and its courts, uh, it's either that there will be a physical suffering for God's people, but a spiritual protection. That seems to fit with the book too. Uh, that spiritually God's people are protected. There's nothing that this world can do, neither angels and demons, nor life or death, nor anything can separate us from God's love. But they might kill you. That, that, that's what the New Testament says, and that's what this book says. Um, so it, it quite likely could mean that. It also it all could mean that there is protection for God's people, but not for the rest of the world, not for those who are outside of Christ. Either way, I think it says the same thing. Now, just quickly on all these wonderful numbers, 42 months, 12, 60 days, three and a half days, three and a half days. Uh, now, just quickly, uh, once we've uh, done a bit of maths, I asked at, uh, Nathan about this. He did maths. I, I confirmed it. It's, it's okay. 42 months is 
three and a half years. 1260 days given a 30-day month is three and a half years. Three and a half days, three and a half days. So what you have through this passage is three and a half, three and a half, three and a half, three and a half. We saw that come up again and again and again and again in Daniel. Uh, Numbers are symbolic in Revelation. We see that really clearly. Uh, and, And three and a half being half of God's number of seven, half of fullness, half of completeness, half of perfection, says it is incomplete. It is not the full amount of time. It will be cut short. So when we read 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half days, we're meant to be thinking this doesn't go on forever. This isn't the eternal state. This is cut short. It's incomplete. It's not the fullness of time. Now, as we move on to these wonderful witnesses uh, that come up, uh, there is loads of Old Testament imagery going on here. Um, The olive trees, the lampstands, that is lifted straight out of Zechariah chapter 4. I really want you to read Zechariah. We'll touch on that, uh, Zechariah 4, at the end. Uh, And it's specifically talking about the king, Zerubbabel, and the priest, Josiah. Uh, We're told that's who they're talking about. Uh, And they're empowered by God to do his work in the face of opposition. That's the language of Zechariah. That's what's going on there. Um, So we go, well, is is this talking about Zerubbabel uh, and Josiah? Are they going to come back? And what's going on there? But you go, no, no, there's more going on here. Uh, We see these uh, witnesses described. Uh, and, and they're described with the power to shut up the heavens so it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. And our Old Testament buzzer says, Elijah, 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 uh, one of the greatest of the prophets. That's what he did. Uh, they had the power to turn the waters into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague. And we're going, Moses, Moses, Moses. And you start thinking, oh, who were the two prophets who turned up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Elijah and Moses. The law and the prophets, the two witnesses of God's world, uh, of God's word to a hostile world. But they're mushed together here with Zechariah 4. It's all the symbolism being pushed together. Uh, then when we think about lampstands, the lampstands in Revelation itself are talking about the churches. It's talking about God's people, the, the light to the earth. That's what happens throughout the New Testament. Christians are called lights. And it seems to be that these witnesses, these lampstands, uh, these olive trees, these, these lights are God's people altogether. Those who are God's witnesses on the earth. And we're hearing Jesus' words echoing now, aren't we? Who will be my witnesses? You will be my witnesses to all the nations, Jesus said to his followers. Now, why do I think that these aren't two specific people who will be raised up in the last day? Uh, just a little bit of Greek uh, if, you, uh, if you're interested, uh, that word bodies there, that should be body. So Greek's a very specific language uh, and the words tell us whether it is plural or singular. And it's very clearly singular. So it should read, their body will lie in the public square. You think, oh, well, what's going on there? It, it's a singular witness. The same with their, uh, same with their mouth. Uh, the fire comes from, not their mouths, because there's two, but from their mouth. Uh, the, the, there's indications here that this is one group, uh, one, one witness, if you like, but, but spread over many. Uh, whatever it is, they are very clearly given a task. God's appointing them to be witnesses. They will prophesy, speak his words. They're protected by God himself uh, until the task is done. You notice that until they finish their testimony, they're untouchable. And it's only when they've delivered the message that God has decreed they will deliver, that they might be slaughtered. That the protection is lifted, the physical protection. Uh, they're slaughtered in Sodom. No, not Sodom, not Egypt. No, no, not Egypt. Jerusalem, the city. And you go, well, which is it? Where is it? It's the cities of the earth who have rejected God's message, who rejected God's people, who rejected God's saviour. And the big surprise here is that Jerusalem's there. Not called Jerusalem, because Jerusalem in Revelation is indicating something else, but the city where our Lord was crucified. We know where that was. And this is one of the cities of rebellion and rejection. The world, the nations. But we don't see the, uh, we don't see them there. They're only dead uh, for three and a half days. 
Uh, we should be hearing Jesus there. They're raised to life. They're vindicated and lifted up uh, on the last day. Uh, and, and, and it finishes, this chunk finishes with Jesus ruling and victorious. The end of chapter 11 is the song of God's people, the song of the Lamb, the eternal kingdom. Who There is, there is no more opposition or oppression or injustice because Jesus is ruling and victorious. Now that's our fly through of these chapters. Um, but there are some very clear things for us. One thing that is resoundingly clear is that the age we are in is the age of God trumpeting his message to the earth. However you interpret the specific details, I want to encourage you not to get bogged down in those, but however you interpret the details, it is very clear that we are in the age of God announcing his message to the earth. This is the age of his people speaking his word, of his witnesses going forth to every nation and drive and tongue. Now often we ask, why, why is God waiting so long? We see injustice, we hear about it, and we are, well, why, why does he just come back already? Why does he just cut it off? Uh, the same thing could have been asked in Egypt. Why did God go through all those plagues? Why didn't he just send the worst plague to start with and just get it done? And we see the answer, well, Peter answers it very clearly for us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. He reminds us not to forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, instead he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. That's what Peter reminds us of. God is not slow in keeping his promise. He's not slow in returning. He is patient. And he's given warning after warning after warning. Trumpet blast after trumpet blast. Destruction and plague and famine and slaughter after another. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And he's given us the task of speaking the words of hope alongside these warnings. God is trumpeting out warnings of destruction and insecurity. And he says, if you do not turn away, this is what is coming ultimately. And he's given his people the task of giving the words of hope. However you interpret the details of this chapter, this much is clear. His church is to shine like lampstands. Uh, like lights, bright lights, his people are to shine on the earth. Testifying to the change Jesus has made in us by our godly lives. Our lives should testify that we are changed. But not only living it out, but speaking it, witnessing. You can't witness, you can't testify without speaking. Witnessing the gospel to the nations who have yet to come under his rule. God's message that is trumpeted out is repent and return to the Lord. And the message his people are given to give is there is hope and salvation to all who turn to Jesus. Now, there's another thing that this passage brings to us, and and that is both realism, a sober reality, and hope. This passage makes it clear that the nations will will fail to repent. That with all the trumpet blasts of destruction, there will be nations that will people who, just like Pharaoh, harden their hearts and fail to repent. And so we shouldn't assume an easy task. We shouldn't march out of here thinking, it's going to be easy, I've just got to announce the good news of hope, and there'll be conversions left, right and centre. Hard hearts and stubborn opposition is for the most part what the Bible causes us to expect. Now that's a bit of a downer, but pause, because there is a great promise of power and protection here. I remember we've got this uh, promise of uh, spiritual protection, the measuring of the temple, If you love Jesus, if you put your trust in him, you are being built like stones into a holy and spiritual temple. And he has measured you and counted you and sealed you with his spirit and you are safe and secure. It's physical protection until the task is done. Not means alleviation from suffering, but your testimony won't be cut off until whatever task God has for you is done. People say you're immortal until God's done with you. I think that's exactly right. Nothing can touch us until we have done what God has ordained for us to do. So we can be bold. 
We also see from this passage that God's people are uh, empowered by his spirit. I just want to go back to Zechariah very briefly now. This is Zechariah 4 and it is such an encouraging passage. Uh, Zechariah is looking at these witnesses, these uh, two, two lampstands, these olive trees, and he asked the angel who talked with him, What are these, my lord? And the angel says, Do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. He said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain, before, before Zerubbabel? You'll become level ground. Then he'll bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it. God bless it. Verse 10. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. This is the passage that God has chosen through his prophet John to to use to colour and flavour and help us understand these chapters in Revelation. A passage filled with the Spirit's power, with assurance that though we are weak, though our, our deeds seem small, though our efforts might seem puny, the, the, the seven eyes of the Lord, the, the Holy Spirit who empowers us is with us, doing God's work through us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you. That in the midst of a, a world that is, is broken and rebellion to you, we thank you. Uh, that you are, you are shouting out who you are and what is coming. And we pray that in droughts and famines and floods and wars and conflict and slaughter, we pray that all these things will not uh, harden the hearts of those we love and know of the nations, but they will see this as a, a trumpeting testimony that you are the Lord, that they might know you that they will hear the warning and the call to repent. We pray, Father, that alongside these trumpets, your people would go out, your witnesses would go across the earth, uh, that we, would, we would, would preach your words and live such lives among our friends and family and neighbours and colleagues, uh, that they would shine like bright lights, and that as we, we speak your words, there will be questions that we might answer with the good news of Jesus, with the hope of salvation. And we pray, Father, that as this passage started, you would help us to pray, to remember that you listen and pause and hear, and even now as we speak to you, you are giving us your attention, that you hear our prayers, the prayers of our lips and of our hearts, and respond as though we fire from heaven. So we pray, Father, that you would help us to do this, to do your work, which you have ordained. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.